Welcome back to this Sunday Long Read Podcast. I'm Don Van Natta, and today we are honored to have with us the award-winning author, Ana Menendez. Ana is the rare triple threat writer, a journalist, columnist, and author of four fantastic books. She's also the daughter of Cuban exiles. Ana went to high school in Miami, not far from where I'm sitting right now. Anna also began her career at the Miami Herald, where the two of us met and worked together more than 25 years ago. Anna has written four books of fiction, including In Cuba, I Was a German Shepherd, and her most recent book, Adios, Happy Homeland. She's lived in Egypt, India, and the Netherlands, and now lives in South Florida. And Anna, welcome. Thank you, Don. It's so wonderful to be here. It's great to have you here, and I really appreciate you joining us today, and I greatly appreciate what you did last week, taking over the Sunday Long Read, and I wanted to ask you, what was that like, and is it something you'd recommend to a friend or an enemy? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was going to say I appreciate what you guys do every week, uh, because I've enjoyed the Sunday Long Read, and like like most art, uh, which I think putting that monster together every week is an art form. Uh, it's very easy to consume and uh, e- easy to forget all the work that went into it. So I'm in awe of, of what you guys are able to do. It's a, it's a, it, it's a labor of love for sure. And it, it, it is it is more work um, than I'd care to admit. And a lot of Friday nights, uh, you know, my wife, Lizette Alvarez, uh, she complains because rather than us going out to dinner or having a good time, I'm putting the list together. So um, yeah, but it's, uh, no, but it, it, it's great. And we've you know, developed a, a pretty cool audience and people seem to really like it. And I really appreciate what you did last week. Uh, it was a tremendous honor to be able to uh, work on it a little bit. And of course, I couldn't have done it without all the suggestions that you and Jacob and the readers uh, forwarded it. And uh, it reminded me again, uh, we, we tend to get pessimistic about the state of journalism these days. And it reminded me again that there's really spectacular journalism going on and um, almost an embarrassment of riches, really. There were so many stories that I saw later that I thought, oh, this would have been great to have in there. And um, and so it was actually, it was very nice. Uh, I got a very nice feeling after all that work that, wow, there's, there's good people out there writing really good stuff. Anna, in your fabulous story in Cuba, I was a German shepherd. You have this sentence that I read last night, and it reminded me of us. Here's the sentence. They weren't close friends, but friendly still in that way of people who come from the same place and think they already know the important things about one another. I think that fits us. You know, we've known each other a quarter of a century and we came from the same place. We came from the Miami Herald newsroom, this incredible, you know, laboratory of journalism and amazing ecosystem. So I wanted to talk to you about that, about the Miami Herald and starting there and what lessons you learned there. Yes, indeed. In fact, I was thinking during that very generous introduction that you gave me that, um, it's, it's, it is generous to say that we work together because, of course, uh, Don was the uh, you know, star reporter. Uh, and I was, uh, well, I started at the Herald in 91 when you were already well established. Um, and I was, I started answering phones, uh, clerking uh, in the Broward office. So, <laughs> so yes, it's generous to say that we work well, together. We so co- thank you for we, that. Well, that's, that's sweet of you to say about me, but we were colleagues for four years before I left. So, you know, we did, we did work yes. together and we, yeah. we certainly shared that great newsroom. But I, 
Yes, of a sort. I mean, that's sort of in, in, in diapers, <laughs> shall we say? But I, uh, but no, it was the it was the greatest. I still tell my students, uh, it's the greatest ever training that you can have as a writer. It doesn't matter what kind of writer you are, and more than anything, it it removes preciousness from both your uh, esteem of yourself and from your writing, and it just it just kind of pummels you with uh, a work ethic that serves at least has served me uh, quite well I mean I don't I don't even I think sometimes how was I ever able to write all those stories on all those onerous deadlines I mean when I started at the Herald uh, my quota in neighbors was 10 stories a week which is, which is and I think which is an amazing think, number of pieces oh. to have to turn around. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a, it's yeah. a lot of work. And the thing about the Herald Newsroom that I find just it, for me was just an incredible experience with the people. Um, we had an editor there named Gene Miller, uh, a two-time Pulitzer winner, who was the happiest person I've ever seen in a newsroom. Right? Wasn't he? Wasn't he? I I I think of him. I mean. I, at least every couple of weeks and I talk to my students about him in fact I just finished uh, telling one of my students at Warren Wilson about uh, one of the writers that I'm supervising about uh, Gene Miller's story when he um, it didn't I didn't it, this was actually this is a story I heard secondhand but you know the, the Hoover story that he had you know was it a Hoover which a lot of people told but I have a Gene Miller story and and as you know the um, to be called you know, when Gene Miller was uh, trolling the baskets um, and he would pick a story of somebody's, there was either jubilation or dread. <laughs> and <laughs> and us, you know, those of us who were in, in, in Neighbors, we just prayed for the moment when Gene would notice one of our stories and pluck it out of the Neighbors baskets and, and edit it. And that happened to me uh, once with a story, or a couple times, but the, the story that's most vivid to me is we were, I was doing a story on these escaped uh, prisoners who had been hiding out in this place called El Hueco, uh, which is roughly about where Dolphin Mall is now, <laughs> a Dolphin Mall in Miami and Ikea and everything else. But it, it was a wilderness then and these, these guys were hiding out there. And anyways, I went out there and I, I did a story. Uh, I went with a great photographer, Raul Rubiera, who saved me from a a dog that was going to attack us and it was it was quite a a spectacular kind of story to be able to do so young that I was and I wrote it up and I was very proud of it and you know Gene saw it and summoned me downtown and um, and we're going through it and I remember him highlighting a particular sentence and he, he read it out loud and he said oh man that's beautiful that is just so beautifully written and you know he highlighted it and then hit the delete key <laughs> and and he was cackling you know as he did it saying it's gotta go it's gotta go and it was such a great lesson uh i don't know i've never forgotten that because i think sometimes um i mean often it happens that i fall in love with something that i've written and then i i, I have to be honest and say well you know if this is really doesn't add anything and it draws attention to itself in a way that doesn't serve the story and I've never forgotten and those were the kinds of lessons that 
uh, journalism gave me, uh, both in the Miami Herald newsroom with its wonderful cast of characters and writers. And, and I mean, you'll remember, Don, how people would just read out people's leads the next morning, you know, great leads, leads to make fun of. Uh, and so there was this tremendous pressure to look good uh, in front of not just the readers and the bosses, but especially the colleagues. And I think that that's a very healthy thing to have when you're a young uh, reporter, to, to constantly set the bar high for yourself because you want to look good in front of people that you admire. You know, I want to look good in front of the Don Vanettas and the, you know, Scott Hyams and, and, and you know, all the other people who were uh, there for a long time. There was so much talent in that newsroom. Uh, it really was, was a farm system, basically, for the New York Times and the Washington Post and the L.A. Times. And and yes. the thing about Gene Miller, I just want to quickly say one other thing and we'll move on. I mean, being edited by Gene was being Millerized, and it was this legendary thing. And Gene had a writing right. style called the Miller Chop, where sentences, if they were more than five words, Gene didn't like them. He liked very short, staccato <laughs> sentences and very clear writing. And his mantra was simplify, which for me as a young journalist sticks yes. with me every time I sit down to write anything. Is simplification, clear writing, it's so hard, um, but it's so important. And that's what Gene yes. taught all of us. And the other thing just about having fun is he, as you I'm sure remember, Anna, he'd laugh. That laugh of his would boom through the newsroom. Yes. It was a joyous place because Gene was there. And yes. if you could make him laugh, you know, I used to say that his funny bone was attached to page one. If you could make Gene laugh, you were going on page one. And that and yes. and and we all wanted to please Absolutely. him and to have a mentor like that at a young age for both yes. of us. It was such a gift. And I think it was you who said this, if I remember correctly, many years ago, that uh, those stories that Gene edited are the stories that survived. Those are the stories that years later still read beautifully and Absolutely. that says a lot I often think that you know use you know we're all wringing our hands over how we're going to save daily journalism and I think you know clone Gene Miller somehow and stick somebody with that kind of joy and I think the joy is key uh, into the newsroom and just make it fun again make it less of a of a slogging business model and that is so important. And I, I, whenever I speak to students, I try to emphasize that, that it, it's got to be fun. You're not in it for the money. You're not in it necessarily for the glory. You may think you are, but you'll learn pretty quickly you're not. It's got to be fun. You've got to enjoy what you're doing every day. And it, it has become in many newsrooms and maybe almost every newsroom, a slog there's cuts hanging over people's heads and everything else. So I, I wanted to ask you about journalism. What was your favorite thing? We touched on it a little bit, your favorite thing about journalism, but also your least favorite. And, and what made you want to leave journalism uh, and take the big leap, as I call it, to write fiction? Yeah, I left journalism twice. Um, yes, yes. And uh, I, it's it's kind of like a, a bad boyfriend for me that you keep <laughs> keep going back to. Um, but you know, you, you all remember the, the good parts and then you go back and you go, oh, that's right, this, I forgot. Um, but I left for the first time in 97 and I had just, I don't know, it was the beginning of, for me, being worn out by uh, nastiness. And my goodness, in 97 it was nothing compared to what I faced uh, when I returned in 2005. But just, I mean, I remember one of my first stories when I went out to the Orange County Register, and it was 
that was another great newsroom, by the way. I mean, there were such wonderful people there, and I, I would sometimes come home with my jaw aching from laughing so much. And it was fun to be there, and it was fun to be with those people. And they're all just great writers who've gone on to do wonderful things as well. But I remember I wrote a story about school crowding because I was an education reporter when I was out there. And back then we didn't have email and all this kind of stuff or, or comments on the stories, but I did have a, a voicemail awaiting me in the morning that had been delivered at about 6.30 in the morning uh, from some guy, I still remember very well what he said. He said, the only money I'm going to pay to ease school crowding is to rent a bus and put you and all your wetback relatives back to Mexico. So, yeah, that was my first kind of wow. And um, and then, of course, I came back in 2005. I was a columnist from 2005 to 2008. And then, you know, this was kind of the height of the trolling, I think. And, um, I mean, I had bloggers saying somebody needs to take on a Menendez behind the woodshed and slap her around. I had... Uh, you know, people circulating petitions saying I was a Castro agent, which is a, a kind of dangerous accusation to level at somebody here. And on and on, I mean, I'm, you know, I, I, I've gotten over all of it, as you can tell. <laughs> but, um, but I, you know, I just felt that I, you know, I was already a fiction writer by this point. Uh, when I came back to the Herald, I had published two books and was working on a third. And I felt, you know, I, I didn't feel strongly enough about the necessity of having my opinions out in the world to put up with the kind of abuse that that entailed, especially as a woman. Of course, you know, I was criticized for my face, for my uh, youth, which wasn't, I wasn't that young. Um, but, you know, as a woman with an opinion, you get attacked at all sorts of levels. I mean, I was called things that I, I, I can't even repeat. And I just felt I don't, I don't care enough. I mean, it's a horrible thing to say, but I don't care enough about having people know my opinion to put up with this. And so I left in 2008. I took a leave, uh, and I accepted a Fulbright um, to Cairo, and uh, I spent a wonderful year there. It was absolute bliss. It's like the the year after I leave journalism is always my happiest. <laughs> um. What made you want to become a fiction writer? Was this something that you had always thought of as a, as a girl and dreamed about? Or was it something that you thought about when you were sort of not having a lot of fun in that last year or two at the Miami Herald? When exactly was it? <laughs> yeah. I, you know, I always like to tell stories. Um, I didn't really think of it in terms of I'm going to write books. Um, but I, since I was a very small child, I loved telling stories because I liked making people laugh. I liked making my lunch, you know, mates laugh. And I saw the power of it. I saw that you could take something that had happened, even if it was embarrassing or sad, sometimes especially if it was embarrassing, and mold it through the way you told the story, where you entered the story, uh, the way you unfolded the information, uh, that you could transform a story and transform an embarrassing story or a sad story into something actually funny that would bring people pleasure to hear. 
And so I always loved that. And of course, I was uh, a tremendous reader. Um, and still to this day, I was on a panel recently and we were talking about writing. And I said, I confessed that if somebody said that I couldn't, somebody told me you cannot ever write again, you're prohibited from writing again. I think I would be okay with that. Uh, but if they said you can never read again, uh, I, I don't know what I would do with myself. It would be uh, uh, almost not worth living if I could not read again. And so to this day, I just, I'm a, I'm a voracious reader of just about everything. And it brings me immense joy. There's nothing that makes me happier than a, a spare day uh, with everybody out of the house and, and, and just a new novel or, or a new book of nonfiction and and just the hours stretched before me and so I because I was a reader I think uh, I was interested in, in stories I was interested in how they were put together and so I always wrote uh, poetry usually mostly when I was in high school and uh, even as a, a undergraduate I was an English major so what I did was study literature and, and I was writing short stories during college as well and the reason I got into journalism was because I figured I could be paid to <laughs> write stories. And, uh, and I, I was right. I was not only paid to write stories and, you know, very wonderful stories of incredible people, but I was also uh, paid to learn. And how much of your journalism experience informed your fiction writing? I, I, I love the story you tell about your fantastic short story in Cuba, I was a German Shepherd, because I believe that was a joke you heard while on the job at the Miami Herald, if I'm not mistaken, right? That's right. I went to do a profile of Tony Lopez, who's a, a very well-known Cuban sculptor, Cuban-born sculptor living here in Miami. And he, you talk about joy. Uh, this, this guy just had so much joy. He was so wonderful and funny and he just told joke after joke after joke and that was one of the jokes that he told me and when I went back to write the profile I there was no place I guess I wasn't skilled enough uh, to incorporate it into the profile that I was writing of him but I never forgot the joke and it stayed with me for years and when I uh, was lucky enough to get into the, the MFA program at NYU and was suddenly tasked with writing fiction, I, I came back to that joke and I knew it had to come at the end of the story because the joke had always struck please me. Tell the, please tell the joke for our listeners. This is a great joke. The joke is, uh, it's funny because I've told this joke all over. <laughs> I've told it in India. I've told it in Turkey. And people laugh because, you know, people have been displaced. And it's, uh, it's a joke that speaks to a lot of different kinds of exile. But uh, it basically is about a, a little uh, Cuban mutt who's just off the boat. And he's walking around downtown Miami and just admiring all the buildings and all the beautiful things that America has to offer. And he's so uh, excited to be there and feeling very good about himself. And so when a French poodle walks by... Uh, being a Cuban mud, he has to beat up yet, you know, he has to start giving her compliments and, you know, uh, if you cook as well as you walk, I'll eat every last bite and all of these kind of Cuban piropos that people have. And she, the French poodle, sort of turns her snout in the air and says, I'm sorry, do you have any idea who you're talking to? You're a mutt. 
and I am a breed of distinction. I am a French poodle, to which uh, Pepito or Juanita, I forget his name, the little dog, uh, thinks for a moment, has a moment of kind of sadness, and then he rallies and says, well, here in America, I may be a mutt, but in Cuba, I was a German shepherd. And yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great joke. I don't know where Tony heard it first, um, but I, you know, I've told it, as I said in other places, that people said that they've heard their local versions of it. So I think it it's, obviously speaks to uh, a lot. It speaks not just to reality, but also to the fantasy. Did you do that with other writing of yours, other short stories or other fiction, things you draw from from journalism, either things you couldn't use or things you observed or maybe even snippets of dialogue that you heard? Absolutely, both in ways that are uh, quantifiable and in ways that, that are really, uh, it's, it's more of a feeling because uh, one of the things that journalism gave me is the uh, many, many stories of many, many people that I met. And I, I grew up a fairly sheltered Cuban girl here in Miami. And there's no way I would have met this variety of people and ways of thinking and ways of being uh, that I had the opportunity to meet as a journalist. And so there's all of that. Um, there's the kind of scales that it forces from, from your eyes, journalism. And it forces you to confront your, your uh, chauvinisms, you know, your biases, your, all, all the things that you take to be true because you've been told them your whole life. You go out into the world and you start talking to people, really talking to people the way journalists talk to people. And you start to understand that the world is actually mysterious and uh, varied and that you know, people believe all sorts of things and people live in all sorts of ways. And this is, you know, this is obvious kind of stuff to us now as, as adults, but as a young journalist, it was really eye-opening. And I think I took all of that to my fiction, that sense of not just wanting to know details about people. And for that, Gene Miller, once again, was the king but also wanting to understand what made them tick. And this is something that journalism doesn't, daily journalism doesn't get into as much, right? In daily journalism, you just go and you get the story and you're done. You don't, you don't really talk about why. Although, although the long form pieces, you know, that we feature in the newsletter and that I'm lucky enough to try to do for ESPN and so many people do, does do that. It's There's enough space to do it. There's enough time to do it. And I think that's why it's resonating with readers because it has the depth that so much of that daily crank it out kind of journalism lacks. Exactly, exactly. And so all of that, of course, feeds into it. And uh, as a, you know, even even painful things um, uh, that, have, that I have lived through have, you know, you as a writer, you're always thinking, well, that's material. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's it's sad, but you know, what does this teach me? What does this say? Um, you know, what does this say about the way people are? And so there's you you have this remove, I think, even from the things that happen to you, which I consider quite healthy. I mean, I remember reading some time ago that um, one of the therapies that they're doing for for soldiers with PTSD is to have them write the story and to tell the story because the act of setting memory into a concise narrative with a definite arc 
uh, it does something. It does something to, to the psyche in that you're able to put that in a kind of form that allows you to uh, distance yourself from it, to not take it as, you know, this is, this is what I am and more of this is something that happened to me. And, you know, I'm, I'm wary of these kinds of justifications for fiction because I think fiction, uh, art, exists for itself and it exists as a, as a, as a beholding of beauty in the world. But I do believe also that there, there is something that happens when we tell a story and when we read a story that is vital to us. Absolutely. You said in the newsletter, in the introduction, something that I loved. You said, or it might have been actually in one of the write-ups for one of your pieces that you chose in last week's Sunday Long Read. You said, if writing is easy, you are doing it wrong. And that's just so true. And the thing that is so wonderful about reading one of your stories is you write, you, won't, you write poetry, you write prose, but there's poetry infused in the prose. And there, it's really true. There's a rhythm to your writing that's so lovely. And I, you know, I was reacquainting myself with some of your stories last night. And it's just this fantastic writing. And you, I sense a poet there. And I, I know you did an interview back in March with C-SPAN for Book TV with uh, our friend Mitch Kaplan at Books and Books, where you talked about that. And Les Staniford was there, also your former professor, uh, about how poetry inspired you and how much poetry is a foundation for your writing and I and I wanted to ask you how important your love of poetry is and is that even in your mind as you're writing these stories? Well it's kind of you to say that and every time somebody says that I feel so um, so honored and and I also um, I, 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 I'm terrified because I can just <laughs> imagine some poet right. <laughs> listening and saying <laughs> not on your life are you a poet? Um, so <laughs> So it, 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 it is a great honor because poetry is what I love above all else. And poetry is what I return to again and again in the depths of my uh, despairs as a columnist. Uh, I ended up at Books and Books one day, and I think I talk about this in the C-SPAN interview, I, I ended up at Books and Books and just picked up the Odes of Horace. And you know, there was something about reading this 2,000-year-old poetry uh, about human beings that are the same as they were and have always been that just calmed me in a way that nothing else could have and gave me perspective and gave me all those things and again I'm making it making art seem utilitarian which I don't want to but at the same time it, it is a kind of uh, confrontation with the mystery and and the beauty of, of life that um, that gives a certain, I don't want to say comfort because it sounds so banal, but it gives one a sense of existing on a continuum and of being part of a world and, and being completely immersed in, in it. And poetry has always done that for me. It is, um, it is for me what I turn to when, I'm, uh, when I, I, I'm not writing for some reason I can't write or I'm facing some uh, question in my work, and I, I don't go to it for answers. I go I go to it because it's beautiful, and it uh, allows me to stop thinking, <laughs> um, and and to just experience. And I think all of us can do with that. 
And so um, my first love was poetry, and I, it's what I wrote in high school. And my uncle, uh, Dionisio Martinez, is a, you know, he's not writing anymore very much, unfortunately, but he was very well respected poet and when I was you know five and six years old that's what he would give me he would give me Carl Sandburg's books and so for me and you know of course as a Cuban you grow up reciting Jose Martí so for me poetry was a normal part of life it wasn't anything to be afraid of and it also wasn't anything to be snobby about and um, so when I write it's not that I'm thinking that I'm writing poetry because I'm not going to flatter myself and you've never and you've never written any poetry, Anna. Here and there, hmm. Here and there but uh, you know, again, it's uh, it's generous to call it poetry, perhaps. But I have I have written some poetry, and it has been published here and there. But it's um, yeah, like I said, I'm not going to flatter myself to that point. But I'm always flattered when somebody says it. Well, there's certainly a lullaby to your your fiction, uh, and it comes through loudly and I would highly recommend our listeners to to find some and and indulge in it um, you you mentioned the utilitarian part of writing I'm fascinated by that and one of the things on this podcast I want to do with writers is, is talk about that so I'm curious about you know how much writing rewriting you do when you first write something at first draft you know Hemingway famously said the first draft is always shit um, what is your reaction to your first draft and how much rewriting do you do before you're mm-hmm. pleased with what's on the page? Oh, Lord. Well, look, just this, the story we were talking about earlier in Cuba was a German Shepherd. That went through, I don't know, maybe um, 100, 200 drafts. And in the beginning, it was um, a completely different story. It was, I, what I had was, was, uh, young, recent Cuban balseros at a restaurant washing dishes and telling jokes. And I persisted with this in this vein for draft after draft after boring draft, and I just could not get it right. And I don't know how it came to me to turn them into old men playing dominoes. I can't pinpoint the time, but a lot of times it happens when I'm on a run. Uh, It doesn't happen in front of the computer, almost never. Yeah, so it's the endorphins. It's that you it clears the yeah, it clears the brain. I I have the same thing when I when I'm on a, a spin cycle. I spin a lot. That's my exercise. The same thing. Something will occur to you that okay, I can fix the story with this. You get inspiration that way. I, the same thing works for me. It's like magic. It's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the drafts, you know, that's part of being a writer. And I tell, I tell writers that I work with, if you don't like that, um, that's like wanting to be a concert pianist without liking the scales and without liking the daily practices. I mean, that's part of it. And it's, it's the biggest part of it, actually. And I actually enjoy it. I, and does, and does that, I'm sorry to interrupt, Jonna, does that work as well, seeing the printed out words on the page as opposed to on the computer screen, on the laptop screen? Definitely. Yeah, why do you think that is? I mean, I think it's because I, I have a remove from it. I feel like it's somebody else's work. Same thing. I don't look at it at, at home. If I can help it, I'll take it to a coffee shop or somewhere else, uh, change the scenery. And, and, and preferably if there's some time that goes by, too, because, you know, you have to put it down, as they say. And editors have told me that over the years. And it's very good advice. Get away from it. Clear your head of it for a day or two. It'll look fresh. 
the weaknesses will become much clearer if you can get away from it. And again, that's a great privilege that very few writers, certainly in journalism, have uh, because they're always under the deadline gun. And of course, you had that with fiction. It's just it never gets easy. Um, you may have more. Certainly, it's a confidence game, right? You have to. And, and this is actually an area I did want to ask you about, Anna. What was the moment when you thought to yourself, OK, I can do this? Because that is an important moment. Oh, Don, to be honest, I'm still waiting for that moment. I Yeah. <laughs> Will it come? <laughs> I guess when it's done. But you know, I've, I've had this novel that I started in 2014, and it's taken so many turns and, and just structurally, it's more the, the what's what I'm hung up on with now is just the structure of the thing. And it's taken so many different forms, and I've given up on it and, you know, burned all but burned it, and then, you know, resuscitated it and I've gone back and forth with this novel and I, I finally feel that it's getting there how how important are compliments to you I, I've talked before about the Sunday long read being a place remember at the Herald we had a publisher named Dave Lawrence who used to do these Dave raves he put out these notes I talked about in the last podcast with 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 Jacob mm-hmm. but I mean I, I think confidence comes in part, in large part, from, as you were describing earlier, from the Herald Newsroom, in the respect and the admiration of your colleagues, or at at the very least, the respect. I mean, in a newsroom, you know, there's a lot of uh, undercutting and, uh, you know, people trash-talking fellow writers. It's a pretty toxic atmosphere, as much fun as it can be, Um, and as you described, too. But how how much do you actually draw in your sort of confidence that you have from the great reviews you got, for instance, from in Cuba, I was a German Shepherd. I mean, how, how much of that really propels you to do good work? Yeah, well, it's, uh, it really is a double-edged sword. And of course, of course, uh, one loves praise. And I'm, I am no exception. I, um, <laughs> I love a great review. And, um, and I'm, always, I'm also afraid of it. <laughs> um, because for two reasons. One is that I'll believe it, um, and that could be deadly. And the other is that I'll become so attached to it that I won't do anything that's different or uh, experimental or, you know, that I become so addicted to praise as I fear that I might, uh, that I will then not take any risks and just keep writing the same book over and over again. And so that, you know, that's always been something that I've been very afraid of. Of your four books, which is your favorite? You know, somebody asked this of a parent. Uh, there's a there's a fable about this where they ask, "What's your favorite uh, <laughs> child?" and and the parent answered, "The one who's most troubled uh, at the time." Um, I kind of feel that way. I mean, in in a lot of ways, it's always the most recent book that's my favorite because it's the one that's closest to where I am, you know, mentally at the moment. Um, and so, but I, so I would say Adios Happy Homeland actually, and also because it's the most troubled, it, it did not, it's the only book that I have that was not, that I wrote that was not reviewed by the New York Times, um, it was not really promoted by the publisher, and it kind of fell through the cracks in a way that I feel was unfair to the book, (laughs) to my child, um, and, 
And so I would say that one. And also I really did a lot of very different uh, things that were uh, partly responsible for it not being reviewed much. <laughs> that it just it was a very strange book. But it's the book that I wanted to write. It's a book that came out of a lot of joy in a lot of ways. Um, and also a lot of sadness. It was a big transition in my life. I had, you know, left my first husband. I had left journalism. I had started over. And I was, uh, it's a book about escapes. No, I, I, I love that answer. And we have that in common. My most recent book, Wonder Girl, which was published in 2011, was also not reviewed by the New York Times while I was at the New York Times. So it was like, it was a double whammy. Yeah, it was, oh my God, I was so angry and so insulted. And, yeah. uh, you know, not coincidentally, about six months later, I left for ESPN. But no, that wasn't the reason, but it was it was a factor. It was a factor. I was just stunned. I really was stunned. I mean, this is, you know, the greatest woman athlete, uh, possibly of all time, a biography of her. You know, and, and for them to ignore it, just it drove me nuts. But um, when you say that your most recent book is the one, you know, that that's the most trouble, that's interesting. And also the one that's closest in time. Do you ever go back and read something you've written 10 or 15 years ago? And, and if you do that, what's your reaction to it? I rarely do. Um, and my reaction is always to get a pencil out and start editing. Even a book that I've just published, I mean, a lot of times I'll read from it and I, I'm reading pencil in hand, you know, when I'm at, with a, you know, an audience um, and I've edited the hell out of it. Um, but, you know, I, I was talking about this some years ago with Edwidge Danticat and she, she made the very good point that one shouldn't disavow one's young work um, because it, it's an expression of that young self. And, and that young self is in all our later works. That's really great. I, I have a Miami question I wanted to ask you. This was actually Lizette's suggestion, and I think it's a good one. What was it like coming back to Miami, you know, from the Netherlands? Your husband's a professor at FIU. How did it feel to come back, and did Miami feel like the cultural wasteland it sometimes feels to us living here? I mean, what was that sort of rite of passage of coming back to a place where, of course, you know, you went to high school here and spent so much so much time here? What was it like in coming back? Yeah, well, there were there were uh, practical things that I noticed. For instance, the streets flood a lot more than they used to. Uh, and then, yeah, and then there were um, ghosts that I had to reckon with, uh, all sorts of ghosts of, you know, of the person that I was, most of all, uh, when I was here. I've been many different people here. I was a high schooler here. I was a young reporter here. I was um, a columnist here. And so the, the, all, the, all those ghosts I had to reckon with as well. But I'm fortunate in the sense that I have a lot of friends who are writers and who are uh, artists in this town. And so I was able to kind of come back into a, a small community of people who are passionate about writing and about uh, creating. And, uh, and so that has helped a lot. And then, of course, having a family. I mean, it's the first time that I'm in Miami with a family of my own, with a child. Right. And um, and that has changed it as well. It's my interests are a little bit different now than when I was 21 living in South Beach. 
And so all of that I, I see as a sort of continuing story, not just of uh, myself, but even of Miami itself, because I'm in a, whether I like it or not, I'm, I'm inextricably twined to this uh, frustrating, maddening, uh, lovely city. Anna, I want to thank you for your time. This has been great. It's been so much fun to catch up with you, and uh, I wish you much continued success. And, and thanks again for taking over the newsletter last week. It was a great honor to have you in charge. Thanks to you, Don. Thanks to both of you, both you and, and Jacob. And it was really uh, delightful and humbling. <laughs> well, thanks again, Anna. We'll see you soon. We'll see you soon. Thank you guys for listening. This has been the Sunday Long Read Podcast with my guest, Ana Menendez. Ana is a journalist, columnist, and author of four books. And uh, we will have links uh, on the podcast page to some of her fantastic work. Um, we will be back again next week. Jacob, I think, might be in the chair next week. So look for him with another great guest here on the Sunday Long Read Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.